Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, and welcome to the Town Hall, our newest open panel discussion podcast about tackling the internal issues preventing progress within the Black community. I'm your host and moderator, Brianna Rhodes, and today we will be discussing the Black education movement. Before we begin, allow me to introduce my lovely panel of guests. So first off is Dr. Lucretia Taylor. Hello. Hi. Next is Tiffany Rosier. Next is Brandon Hull. Hello. Hi. Next is Dr. Marguerite Heinrich. Greetings. Hello. Next is Skylar Caesar. Hello. Hi. And last but not least is Victor Sandifer. Hello, everyone. Hey, how are you? I'm good. That's great. So thank you all so much for being available for this discussion. We have a lot to tackle during this episode, so let's jump right on in. So as I said, we're discussing the Black education movement, and I want to start off by asking you all, how is education as it currently exists, how is it helping advance the Black student into a prepared Black professional? I'll jump in. Okay. Um, and so, you know, I have a lot of thoughts um, when we talk about helping the, the Black student as a prepared professional. And I think we have to distinguish between those that attend primarily white institutions versus those that attend HBCUs because the preparation is very different. Um, I always say that college is more than just the education that you get, but the people that you surround yourself with and the self-esteem that is developed when you're on campus, the connections and professional connections that you make while there. And so while although, you know, PWIs exist, I'm a proponent for HBCUs because I think they best prepare Black professionals for the world by um, allowing a space where you are able to make mistakes and not be ridiculed and be lifted up and, 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 and protected and um, comforted and, you know, also um, being expected to, you know, execute excellence. It's not a space where, you know, you can just go and, and fly through classes, but that the excellence exists. Mm -hmm. And so how to be in professional spaces, again, we were talking in our last episode about authenticity and understanding your own voice and your own power, and even, you know, the responsibilities that you have for other Black professionals in those spaces. And so, um, I think HBCUs do a phenomenal job with preparing Black professionals for Black professional worlds. Um, and PWIs just don't give the same attention to how to develop a Black person in while they're entering into the professional world, especially in entry-level positions where it is white-dominated and you sometimes don't know how to make sure that you're getting paid fairly or that you're asking for the promotion when necessary, or that you're, you know, you're out working your white counterpart and they get a promotion and how do you speak up for yourself? So there's more than just um, the education that happens in, in, in educational institutions, it's really about the preparation for life and how you navigate life and um, the networks that you create to help you navigate life. Mm -hmm. I would say that I think that we have a long way to go uh, with uh, taking care of our Black babies uh, and making sure that they know what's going on. And that's my primary uh, drive and being 
uh, a history teacher uh, now. I, I specifically wanted to teach history and I specifically wanted to work in a space that uh, dealt with uh, minorities uh, because I feel like often when it comes to education um, that Black people are not afforded the same opportunities as our white counterparts. Um, and we are also not uh, taught uh, just how powerful um, we really are. Um, I have cultural reset days in my class uh, once a week where I just affirm with my students that you are smart, you are intelligent, you can be whatever you want to be. And I think it's very important to do that because a lot of times, um, you know, based off of, you know, how you grew up, you come in with a defeatist attitude and you just have to know that you can be just as successful, um, even more successful, honestly, than any of your white counterparts, you know? So I really think that it's important with education that you have to lay the groundwork for making sure that one, spaces are safe, uh, as uh, Dr. Taylor said, for uh, for your Black students to make mistakes and know that it's okay and that you just get up and you go harder and it, it's just fine. Yeah. I kind of want to Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Well, you could go and stop. Right. Oh, I was going to say, I definitely feel like different institutions prepare people in different ways. And I think that there's definitely benefits to both. Like when I think back to my childhood, and I went to like a PWI, like through elementary, middle, high school, and then college, I went to, I guess, majority like Asian and Hispanic. But when I think about my childhood, I always, when I was younger, I really wanted to go to like a predominantly black institution. And I feel like I was missing out on that opportunity. But then when I look back at the successes that I've gotten um, through the schools that I've gone to, I realized that those prepared me in a way that maybe those other institutions wouldn't have. I think there are some benefits to going to those maybe areas of self-esteem or sense of community and identity and things like that. But I also feel like if I would have gone to maybe a school that wasn't at the levels of the schools I did go to, would I have achieved the successes that I've achieved at 24 years old this early? So something to think about. I kind of want to pick up off of that because I am a product of, of PWI with, with my undergrad and master's. I went to UNC Chapel Hill. I think that's like the first public university in the nation. And I can tell you all right now, I wish I would have attended the HBCU. It's something I've been grappling with ever since I graduated from um, undergrad in 2015. Just knowing how, like, you kind of see the racist, racism seeping out of the buildings, kind of. You know, every building is named after, like, a KKK member or somebody that's rooting in white supremacy. You know about Silent Sam and all that stuff. That just can go on for days, talking about the four years that I spent there. And um, based on like where I'm in, where I used to go, live in um, Chapel Hill, it's the RDU area. So we had North Carolina Central, we had North Carolina A&T and all those great HBCUs. And whenever I used to go just like spend a weekend there, I was like, wow, this experience is like no other. It's like, what, what, how did I miss out on this, you know? Then you go to like a Carolina game and all you're doing is jumping into it's like it's nothing, no culture, no swag to it. So I do I am very proud of like where I've been able to be at, like, you know, based off of my background in education, going to Carolina and UMD College Park. But it's something about that experience, like you said, Dr. Taylor, that is not comparable to what I saw 
on those campuses, HBCU campuses. It's not too late. Go ahead and get that doctorate. You know what I think? I am an African American literature. You'll see me okay. soon. <laughs> so I wonder. That's right. Um, I think. Oh, go ahead, Victor. Oh, I was just going to add that. Um, I wanted to talk about kind of my experience um, in the K through 12, because I think that's like the foundational peers for a lot of folks. Um, so in particularly like elementary school. So I went, I'm from Oakland and I went to elementary school at Lincoln Elementary, which is in downtown Oakland, which is in the heart of Chinatown. Um, and so the majority of the students that I went to school with in elementary school were Asian of Asian descent. So one of the things that was interesting about them was that after school, while I would be going home to go play basketball or go back home and chill and kick it, they were going right back to school, lining up across the street at this other place, going back to what they call Chinese school. And I was, as a kid, I'm like, yo, I don't know why y'all going back to school. I would never get it before we do seven to eight hours of school, then go back for another two or three uh, just to go back. But when I look back at and reflect on it, this concept of like learning culture. So when we talk about what we're not learning in our schools, the, the kind of like, I guess, um, pride and self that we don't necessarily have because of the way it beats the school system beats it out of us, how society beats it out of us. They were combat their their families found it a point to combat that by having them go back to school and learn their history, to learn their culture, to learn different things outside of the the traditional school system. So yes, learn about the tools that America has so you can so you can kind of navigate uh, these American waters, but also you're going to have a strong foundation of self. So I think in some ways, I think a lot of um, a lot of our K through 12 don't do that for black students. And I think in certain ways, it's going to be up to us to take that on and take that responsibility. And I know there's schools out there that do that. But I think on a more consistent basis, like more of our schools need to have that in there for us or our communities need to have that for us. I think what's crazy is that uh, the government realizes that there is power in that because uh, I live in Houston. So. Um, Texas, our governor has actually banned uh, critical race mm -hmm. theory. And uh, I said, great, because my kids came to me and they were like, well, why, what is this? And I said, I'm kind of glad that I guess this is it made media news, because if there's one thing that I think uh, if you want a kid to uh, be interested in something or what's going on in something is tell them, oh, no. Tell them, no, you can't do this because that is just going to naturally pique their curiosity. And so luckily, like I said, I work for a charter school um, and we had a meeting at the beginning of the year because I'm like. Half of what I teach is about racism. So what, so what am I doing? And they said, oh, that's not critical race theory. I wrote my whole dissertation on critical yeah. race theory. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Well, no, you're fine. So I'm <laughs> like, so how am I supposed to teach <laughs> like when the, gov the governor is banning it and they said we actually don't care what the governor says so continue um so but you are going to teach critical race theory and i think that that's something that's so important i mean teaching race and racism in america is not critical race theory critical race theory is a doctoral level uh scholarly theory that only people that are in law school that are or that are in graduate school study and it's so complex and it was so triggering and traumatizing for me to learn it Took me three years to learn all about it, right? And so I think just the misconception of what critical race theory is and the idea that it's even taught in K through 12 schools is outrageous because it's not. Um, now, critical race theory informs teachers, great teachers like you, Brandon, on how to be great teachers, right? Because the people that study critical race theory then produce and create content that you can consume and then present to students, right? And so it, it's, uh, that part of it is very frustrating to me, but 
also because black American history is American history until we arrive at the place where Oakland Unified School District is. And they were the focus of my doctoral study where they're teaching ethnic studies as a mandatory course in ninth grade. Now we're on to something. Now, you know, you can have a black student learn about, you know, their position in society without feeling othered, right? Because it's a part of the required curriculum. So um, it does start in K through 12. Black students, public education is not made for black students. And so a lot of black students don't even make it to college. And so before we can engage in a conversation around them going to an HBCU or PWI or a state school or a private school, we have to talk about public education's failure to teach truth in curriculum, especially around American history and, and blackness in America. And I so think even if, if, I was gonna say, and even just to add to that, like not even just for black students, for those white students and other students too. So when you know that and you hear all that information about what the contribution of black folks is to this world and to this country, then you have to take a pride in that because it's exactly, it's a part of your history too and not to other it. Like that's what they try to do with our history is like other it from and separate it from America. So yeah, just in addition to that, I just wanted to add that. Yeah. I have a question. Do you guys think it's our job to teach uh, white people about black history or do you feel like they should, if they're truly interested in knowing that they should do the legwork? Because I struggle with that. See, see, my thing is that I'm just gonna say I think again, black history is American history. So I don't think that I don't think that we hold them accountable enough to the idea that our history is a shared history, that they have a responsibility as much as we do of teaching. I was gonna that that was my point. I was gonna say it another place that you end up finding it is when I went to culinary school, what we don't learn about are any black contributions to culinary history in the United States or in the world or where food comes from and you know where things are produced and things like that. And so it's just another place where um, the lack of information creates a very one dimensional education. I think if you know all of that information, like it just creates a 3D life for you as a person, as a human being sharing a planet with other human beings, you should know what other human beings are doing, <laughs> like especially the ones that live next door to you. And, you know, with the way education, of course, in the United States works, it's like, you know, essentially they weren't trying to educate anybody. They were trying to train factory workers. Let's get them to be able to sit someplace for eight hours and get them to follow instructions and then send them out to work. So, you know, when you talk to everybody's great, great grandparents, they were like, oh, I only have a third or fifth grade education. That was not something unique to specifically black communities. That was something unique to almost everybody's community. Women weren't allowed to be educated. So I think we're, when we talk about that kind of mechanism, we're, that's how you end up where we are right now is that education, public education wasn't about educating anybody. It was about training factory workers because during the industrial revolution, that's what you needed was factory workers. People could stand in one spot and follow instructions and do the same thing over and over again repetitiously until unions started to show up and go, you can't work people 80 hours a week. And then all of a sudden we're at a 40 hour work week, but we still have this mentality around working in a factory, even with all of the new things we do now. And so as we continue to like, just double down on this idea that we just need to train drones essentially, or train robots essentially to go out into the workforce, the workforce has changed drastically. And so everyone's undereducated at this point. I, like to your point, Victor, Korean kids, they're, they're <laughs> and I want to talk about Korea because I have so many friends who are Korean. They're like, they go to school 10 to 12 hours a day in Korea. So it's not like having extended education is not something unique to any place else in the world, but here. 
Mm-hmm. Like we the only ones beefing people about that. Their kids go right back to they go back for study. They go. I mean, they have of course right now there you know there's a, a fight against you know students being so pressured because they have such high um, suicide rates because of it directly collect, connected to education. But this idea that learning about who you are in the world should only take seven to eight hours a day. And then also learning about how we are in the world collectively should only be squeezed into eight hours a day. Most countries are not subscribing to that. So I can I can see how we continue to distill education in this country because you're not interested in education. You're interested in, in, interested in training um, uh, employees. And, and with that, to, answer the, to further answer the question, y'all, we, our system isn't like it's failing us rurally because right now all those jobs that they were preparing us for are obsolete and they're being taken over by robots and AI. Mm-hmm. So a lot of our education now needs to be about how you code and how you figure out how to program these computers to be able to take over the jobs that nobody technically, I mean, that they say nobody wants, but that they're erasing from existence. So we have to start teaching our kids how to code and do those kind of things if we're going to be able to be um competitive, I guess, in the workforce, if that's what you want to do. Mm-hmm. Who do you all believe is responsible for educating Black students thoroughly and appropriately? You know, like we talked about the school, but like what outside? What about outside of school? And what about at the home? Yeah, I was going to say I am raising two young Black boys and I find every opportunity to have them see the connections between the things that we're reading our books. Like we have book subscriptions with only black faces, you know, because they see enough of the other stuff in the world, making the connections between what they're reading and what they're learning to school and how they can learn to advocate for themselves. So I'm using, you know, school as kind of like um, a means to an end, right? Like they go to Montessori school right now, they're learning how to socialize. They're very young, two and a half. He's learning how to socialize, how to play, how to learn most social skills. But at home, we're learning critical thinking. We're learning how life skills, cleaning up after yourself. And those will continue. I really, I do put a lot of the, the pressure on the parents, but unfortunately not everyone is in the position to have that kind of um, uh, time. Mm-hmm. and intentionality with their children because they're hustling to make a dollar, they've got to work, they've got other children, whatever the case is, whatever the circumstances are. I'm not going to pretend that everyone's circumstances are the same. So I really put it on the Black community, you know, for us to educate our own because no one is going to do it. Like we're begging these folks to give us a class, give us an ethnic studies, give us a this, give us a that. And the systems weren't designed for Black folks. The systems weren't designed for us to be thinkers and entrepreneurs and doctors and leaders of the world where it's designed for us to be workers and I'm not having it with mine, you know, and how do we come together? Like there are some uh, private black schools that we have in like Los Angeles, but there's not enough of them that are teaching, you know, liberation and freedom and, and how to really be in this world as a black man or a black woman. So I, I put it on the community. I put it on the parents. I agree, definitely, as a parent. And Skylar, were you on this trip to the South, the 2018 mm-hmm. trip, right? Yeah. So I brought my children on a very important trip in 2018. Uh, we commemorated the 50th anniversary of MLK's assassination. And we went on a trip through the Deep South. And uh, it was a life-changing and a life-informing experience for me, but also my children, because it was my way of teaching my, at the time, eight and 12-year-old about what it meant to be Black in America 
And so to travel the steps of the poverty tour and to stop at Medgar Evers' home and MLK's resting place and um, the tomb of the unknown slave and all of the other dozens of places that we stopped, right, Skylar? Mm -hmm. uh, to have the privilege of showing them what it means to be Black in America, um, I, I felt like, okay, even if you can't travel, you can utilize the you know, museums and, and, and history that's in your area to inform what it means to be Black, because it's all around us, even locally. But you know, to really get a real clear understanding of what it means to be Black in America, you have to visit the Deep South. So can I ask a question around that? So, you know, part of the story is to be Black in America. And, and I'll tell a little bit about, I went to a um, primarily white high school and it was very challenging for me. And I remember the day when we had the unit on enslaved Africans and my teacher turned to me and asked me how I felt about whatever the, the reading was. And at that moment, I knew there was something missing. <laughs> I was like, this isn't right. Something doesn't feel good in my soul. You know, and I was in 12th grade and had already applied to all these PWIs, not even knowing that HBCUs existed. I live on the West Coast. There's never any mention of HBCUs. And for some reason, my grandmother came in and she said, oh, you should look at that. And I was like, what? There's a school made for me. I say all that to say is that, you know, there needs to be, the, the question is, you know, getting the information of um, who we were before slavery existed into the minds of our young people, that our existence did not begin with being enslaved because that in itself, I think is, it can be mind boggling and, and weigh you down to like, and weigh you down in a way that, you know, it didn't happen for me. I sought another way. I sought a way out. But for some, it may be, well, this is how we start. We're just slaves. And, you know, and that mentality of, you know, hustle and fight and, and, and just get what you can because you're not meant for anything greater. And so teaching that we are kings and queens who have developed languages and architect and all of these magnificent things into the minds of our young people before they hit middle school. And that is, that's my hope. And so if you all have any, you know, ideas or thoughts around, around doing that, then I'd be really interested in hearing. I think that that's great. And my, my partner is a teacher and he teaches a lot about Hypatia and math and kings and queens and, and empires and legacies that existed far before 1619, right? But I do just want to note that our existence and our story in America is really about liberation, freedom, and justice. It's not about uh, enslavement. We descended from slavery and slavery was really horrible, right? But when you walk the path of our ancestors, Dr. King and all of the other freedom fighters that, you know, you know, that gave their lives, it really is a liberation story. Um, however, I think it is important to acknowledge the diaspora and understand where all of humanity kind of resonates, including math, science, right? And that comes from, you know, Africa. Our daughter's name is Yaasantiwa, right? She was a Ghanaian queen. So you, I mean, you have to ground yourself and root yourself. She liberated the Ghanaian army, right? From white folks. You have to kind of root yourself in all meaning and, and experience in all of it, because it all matters. 
But I do think that our existence is more informed by our identity as descendants of American slavery and blacks in America than it is of you know being descendant of generations of far, far empires ago in Africa. I think a good way to oh you can it's the last comment before we close out that I think a good way to tell these stories is through the media uh as well too, especially because we are in a tech technology driven um society. Uh, I had uh, kids come up to me and ask me about Tulsa because we just celebrated uh, the centennial of the burning down of Tulsa. And then I just uh, saw, I think LeBron James did a documentary on it or he produced the documentary for it. And so I showed it in class. I don't think I was supposed to, but I showed it in class. And um, just even seeing on social media, so many adults that were saying that they hadn't even realized hey, that Tulsa was a thing. And like even HBO spearheading this with Watchmen and um, with uh, Lovecraft, uh, you know, so a lot of people didn't even know about that story in particular. So I feel like as long as we have those people that are in those rooms, um, like saying, hey, these are the stories that need to be told. Um, that's why I push for Black people to be in those media spaces and say, hey, this this is something that needs to be talked about. Everyone watches like TV or they watch, they, they scroll social media and stuff like that. So I think that that would be a great way um, to continue to tell our stories the way that we want to tell them, you yeah. know, it's important. I agree. Like even with my profession as a journalist, that's one thing I made sure that was done even in undergrad and grad school. I said, if I'm not writing about the black community, I don't want it. Politics, I, we have everything. Politics, health, you could, anything could be written in the black angle. So that's something that I'm glad you said, Brandon, because that's something that I've been working on is like the black neighborhoods and trying to let my millennial group and just people before me and after me know about this history. I kind of see myself as like a little baby historic preservationist. So I think that's important. And I pray that we continue to continue to like talk about these great things and I wish we could talk about this a little bit more. We'll talk about it later, though. But um, this will conclude this episode. And I want to thank you to our guests and thank you all for joining us for this episode of the Town Hall on the Polaris Network. <laughs>